Just give me, or even as I'm talking, more of a heart revelation of the church and what you want the church to be. And Lord, use this morning to shape and mold us here to, to follow your word, to, to be the church that will bring you glory and honor. So move in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, I want to mention um, at the back table there are some green sheets, I think, which are uh, a tentative Mercy Hill Church doctrinal statement and a tentative Mercy Hill Church covenant. And I'd like, we're calling them tentative because I'd like you all to take a, get a copy of it and to look at it this week and to email me or the other elders with any of your thoughts, concerns, questions, puzzlements, whatever. So they're at the back table, and if you'd like to grab one of those, if, you need, if we run out, then email me. I'll send you out some more. But we'd like you to give us feedback on this so that you're not just like all of a sudden hit with this thing cold. So I wanted to mention that. So we're going through a series called... Doctrines, passions, and practices of Mercy Hill Church. And there's two purposes we have in doing this. One purpose is because we're moving into membership at the church here, and we want to be clear in terms of what are our doctrines, passions, and practices. Who are we? What do we believe? Where are we going? And so we're on, I think this is week eight of the ten-week series. That's one purpose. The second purpose is just simply to encourage you, build you up in the Word, strengthen your trust in Jesus Christ, help those of you who aren't yet followers of Jesus to learn more so that you, we pray and hope and want to do all we can to persuade you to become followers of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're up to in this series. And this morning, I want to talk about the church. What is the church and how does it function? And I'd like you to go back 2,000 years in time to when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man. Came to the earth, the visible image of the invisible God. To understand church, you have to start back there. And he came to show us who God is like, because he is fully God in himself. And so you watch Jesus and see how he healed the sick, and how he fed the hungry, and how he had compassion on the needy. And how he had white, hot, holy anger and cast the money changers out of the temple. And how he got in the face of the religious leaders and called them hypocrites because they were. And how he wept over Jerusalem because of their lostness. And how he taught. And he said, we're sinners. Not we, excuse me. I mean, we are. Me speaking. Jesus speaking. You're sinners. And all of us have sinned to the extent that we face God's wrath and anger. And... You, he said to the people he was speaking with, you need to be forgiven. And I haven't come to call righteous people. Nobody's righteous. I've come to call sinful people. And I'm going to die on the cross to pay for your sins. So that all of your sins can be forgiven. So that you can be changed in your heart. Receive God's power to change your nature. So that your willful, proud, rebellious heart is subdued. And you have a new heart which loves me and loves the Father and trusts me. And you'll be born again. Through God's power, forgiven, clothed in my righteousness, changed, adopted into my family. You'll be loved and you'll be cared for. You'll have God as your father. I'll guide you. I'll provide for you. I'll strengthen you. I'll comfort you. I'll give you a meaningful purpose of advancing my gospel here on the earth. And I'll finally raise you from the dead to be with me forever. So that's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And you could conclude from that... That what Jesus is interested in is simply saving individual people all around the globe throughout history. And I don't want to make that sound at all unimportant. That is vastly important. If that didn't happen, nothing would be of any significance. But that's not all that Jesus is up to. He's not just saving individual people throughout the globe and throughout history. His intention is to join those people together to join them together in relationships into an entity which he calls the church. That's part of his purpose too. Not just a lot of individual saved people, but that those individual saved people would be joined together with other individual saved people in something called the church. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What is this entity that Jesus is so passionate about? And that's the answer to the first question. Why should the church be so important to us? It's because it was passionately important to Jesus. We can see here six points. There's many more I could have mentioned, but look at these six. Number one, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 says, uh, 
staggering command to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's why the church is so important. Jesus loves the church. Not just scattered individuals of believers, but this entity of these believers coming together in a certain kind of connectedness. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. Second reason. Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. Acts 20.28. Paul is talking to the elders, church of Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, you elders, and to all the flock in which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Jesus obtained the church, purchased the church at the cost of his own blood, which shows us two things at least. The the fact that it took Jesus' blood, the, the, the blood of the God man, that infinitely precious blood, the fact that it took that price to pay for us shows us how desperately wicked we were. It took an infinite cost to pay for the sins we'd committed, which should humble us. And the fact that he obtained us with his own blood should encourage us because he loved us and to the extent of obtaining us at the price of his own blood. He didn't hold back from that horrific cost that it cost him. He loved the church, gave himself up for us, obtained the church with his own blood. And number three, what Jesus is doing through history is building his church. Matthew 16:18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That is Peter's confession. Peter as The first one to officially in the Gospels confess Jesus as Messiah on this rock. Peter's confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell, which I think is a reference to death, will not prevail against it. The reason it's important to say that the gates of hell won't prevail against it is that Jesus talks about how they will kill you, they will arrest you, they will persecute you. But the gates of hell, the threat of death is not going to prevail against my building my church. So what's Jesus building now? What's he building in San Jose today, June 1st, 2008? He's building his church. He's building his church today in North Africa. He's building his church today through Raj and Scout and many others in Central Asia amongst the the U people, an unreached Muslim people group. He's built his church throughout the centuries. What Jesus is doing between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is he is building his church, building his church building his church, not just scattered individual saved people, but bringing them together into relationship, forming an entity. Fourth, Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. What is it? That Jesus is nourishing and cherishing. It's his church. Number five, Jesus is at work cleansing the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So Jesus is cleansing his church, sanctified through the washing of water with the word. He's cleansing the church. And then his whole goal, number six, Jesus will present the church to himself as his flawless, beautiful, splendid bride. Ephesians 5.27. So that, the whole purpose of this thing, it's so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spots or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's an amazing thing, that the church, the bride, he's going to present to himself is called splendid. That's so amazing because originally the church needed to be purchased at the price of Jesus' blood. We were sinful people. Rebelling against God, he saved us, he washed us, we were born again, our hearts were changed, we were brought into relationship with each other. An entity is formed, which now he looks at and is splendid, 
by his grace and by his mercy and what he's done in changing us. And so Jesus' passion is to love the church, give himself up for the church, obtain the church with his own blood, build the church, nourish, cherish, cleanse the church. And the whole goal of this is to present the church to himself as his bride. And you've got those wonderful statements in Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus presents himself with the bride, spotless, splendid, perfect. That's why the church should be so important to us. Because the church is so important to Jesus. So what is the church? I mentioned a few months ago, I think it was, about a book that's come out recently that talks about two guys playing golf on a Sunday morning. That, that that's church. Um, there's people who think that sitting in front of you know, a television preacher, that that's church. There's people who, I've got a friend who thinks that there's a certain trail, which is a beautiful place in the area, that that's his church. So what is church? And that's what I want to try to unpack. I've got nine points here in terms of what is church. Because Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark in terms of what church is. He spells out in the scriptures, through his own teaching and through the teaching of the apostles, he spells out what church is to be. And there's things today that call themselves church that aren't. And every church could become more stronger in being what Jesus wants the church to be. And I want us at Mercy Hill Church to be as strong as we can, to be as faithful as we can to the scriptures and what Jesus taught church should be. Church isn't just ours for the making. Like, let's, let's figure out what should church be like. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? But he's told us in the word. So let me give you nine points that we heard Mercy Hill Church are seeking to pursue in terms of what it means to be church. And this, this might be helpful if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. You might have wondered, you know, what is church? I mean, church sounds like it's important. You know, what is it really? Well, here's nine statements. I want to show you they're from the scriptures that we think church is. Number one, the church is made up of people who trust Jesus as Savior, Lord, and all-satisfying treasure. That's how I like to put it, just because that helps me so much. Savior, I'm a sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. I can be completely forgiven, washed clean of all of my wrongdoing, past, present, and future. I can be clothed with Jesus' perfect moral goodness. It's not my own. It's His clothing me. So God the Father accepts me as flawless, morally perfect, because I'm clothed with Jesus' flawless moral perfection. You see, well, how does that happen to me, a sinner? There's only one way, through Jesus' death on the cross and trusting his death on the cross, trusting Jesus. I trust him as Savior. I trust him as Lord. I welcome his rule, his word, his commandments in my life. And all that means I trust him as my all-satisfying treasure. Just like Vincent shared this morning. When your heart is ill at ease, when your heart's discouraged, when you're feeling empty or worried or fret, fretful, set your heart upon the Lord Jesus. He will meet you, strengthen you, satisfy you. He will come with his love and his nearness and goodness, and you will be strengthened. You'll receive peace. You'll be content in knowing him. He's your all-satisfying treasure. Okay, that's a lot about number one. Here's the verse. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I've already read this verse already, but different point. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, namely Peter is the first one to confess Jesus as Messiah. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So everyone who's in the church is built upon the rock of confessing Jesus as Savior, Lord, treasure. Now, in Matthew 16, 18, the word church there is referring to the, the universal church, all the believers all around the globe. But in number two, Jesus is talking about a local entity, Matthew 18, 17. He's talking about church discipline. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So there's a local group right there. There's a church you can tell it to, the church you're a part of. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So church isn't just all the people in San Jose who are confessing Jesus as Savior, Lord, and treasure. Church is people in San Jose who are confessing that, who join together to be church, according to what Jesus says. 
It's people who connect with each other. They know who each other are. I'm connected to you. You're connected to me. We're connected to each other. We're joining together to be church as Jesus laid it out to be. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of churches in San Jose. So there's a universal church, all the believers everywhere. And then there's local churches, the local church. And the New Testament doesn't know anything about somebody who's part of the universal church who's not part of the local church. The way you become part of the universal church is by being part of a local church. That's how the New Testament talks. Top of the next page, number three. So we join together to be church, and then we need to be built on and according to the Word of God. Oh, this is so vital. Start with Ephesians 2.19, and I'm going to switch the order. So then... You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the scriptures. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now this is talking about the universal church everywhere. The universal church is built upon the scriptures. This is our foundation. We're built on the scriptures. We're built according to the scriptures. The scriptures is our authority. So we don't want to be built upon a personality or built on some kind of a program or built on a, on a building. We want to be built upon the apostles and the prophets as our foundation with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Built on the scriptures. Now, it's not just that I need to be built on the scriptures as the teaching, preaching elder. The church needs to be built upon the scriptures. So you need to be built upon the scriptures. My my job in preaching is to acquaint you with the book, meeting Jesus in his word, so that you study the scriptures for yourself. It's not enough. I, I say this maybe too often. Actually, probably not. Could never say this too often. It's not enough that you know what I think the scriptures teach. It's not enough that you believe what you believe because you've heard me say it. That will not be enough for you. That, that does not make Jesus happy, if that's the extent of your knowledge. My goal is to help you study the book for yourself so you know the book. You can point to chapter and verse about why you believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Not just because me or some preacher you've heard on the radio says it, but because you can go to the book yourself. You, you need to be built on the Word. Please. I, I'm going to plead with you. We will be so much stronger as a church if you, each of you, individually know God's Word. Don't just rely on the elders knowing God's word or your home group leader knowing God's word. But you need to study God's word for yourself, seeking your roots deep into the scriptures, meeting Jesus in the scriptures day after day after day. Okay, so then what's my job? Acts twenty twenty six. Paul's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Wow. Paul could have been guilty of their blood. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's a bad thing, I can tell, to be guilty of their blood, okay? So I testify you, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. My job is to teach you the whole counsel of God. I have have a responsibility before Jesus Christ, to teach this book to you. It's not my call to decide, well, what part will I teach or what part won't I teach, depending on what's controversial or not. I have to teach this book. You want me to teach everything I see clearly in this book. You do, whether you agree with me or not. Because it would be very bad for me. If you love me, you want me to do that. Because I'd be guilty in some way of your blood if I withhold anything that I see clearly in this book. So we've got to be built on the scriptures. And so I've got to teach, even if stuff's controversial. And I can't pick and choose and say, well, I'll teach this, I'm not going to teach this, because then I'm the authority, not the book. Right? Okay. So we as a church, and every church, needs to be built on and built according to the Word of God. Which, number four, means that they're led by a team of male elders. Well, let's just get right into the controversy then, okay? Uh, here we go. This is controversial, but I think the Bible's clear. It's elders, it's a team of elders, Acts 14.23. When 
they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So as Paul went back to each church that he planted, he appointed elders, plural, in each church. And my conviction is that elders are, are men. Not because, the reason God has set this up this way is not because women are in any way less gifted, less effective, less holy, less godly than men. Men and women are absolutely equally gifted, blessed, equal before God, equally loved. But God has simply set things up so that the men bear primary responsibility for leadership in the home and in the church. The picture that I love that I think summarizes this is of a ballroom dance with a couple that are really good, okay? Because it's a thing of beauty. It's a thing of beauty. And no one's looking at that thing of beauty and saying, you know, the woman's not really that important, is she? She's really inferior. How can he do that to her? No one's saying that. Because when, it, when there's servant leadership and Christ-trusting followership, the result is glorious. And that's how God has set things up. You can look at 1 Timothy 2.12 as a key passage where Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Okay, it's just, it's, I don't know how you get around that. It's as clear as can be. So it needs to be led by a team of male elders. I got an email this morning from a friend of mine who's in North Africa. Uh, many of you know him. His name's Steve. And uh, leading um, a team of believers who are advancing the gospel there and he said greetings uh, we'd be grateful for your intercession today as the leaders of the underground church across the area come together for training and prayer as a group it is only our second such gathering our special focus today will be the biblical mandate for qualified multiple elders to shepherd and lead the flock of god okay morocco too north africa all right so it means that they're led by a team of male elders now i've got this Parenthesis, which are while at the same time encouraging both women, women and men to pursue ministries. Acts 2.17, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So while we raise the banner of male elders, we also want to raise the banner of encouraging women and men to pursue kingdom ministry. Okay? Pursue it. All over the place. In every biblical way. Okay, so built on and according to the word of God, led by a team of male elders, Number five, this entity of people called the church practices water baptism and celebrates communion together. Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, they have Pentecost, remember? Holy Spirit's poured out. Peter's preaching. Thousands cry out, what should we do to be saved? Peter's answer, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is baptism? Could do a whole series of sermons on that. Today in the church, what we've we, we tend to tell people that the way to get saved is you go forward at a meeting, or you pray a prayer, or you sign a card, or you raise your hand, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But in the early church, that's what baptism was. Baptism was what you did to express your calling out to the Lord to save you. Baptism was what you did to show that you were calling upon Jesus for salvation. The baptism doesn't save. It's the faith in Jesus that's in your heart that's being expressed through baptism. But every believer in the New Testament got baptized. That's what happened when you were saved. That's how you expressed faith, which is what was what saved you. And so baptism is absolutely crucial for the church. The church needs to have baptized people in it because if it's got saved people and they're saved according to what the New Testament says, they've expressed that through baptism, as Peter calls us to here. And then communion. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, Paul, quoting Jesus, as he calls us to celebrate communion together. So there's two ordinances, they're called, 
where we have baptism and we have communion. So here at Mercy Hill Church, we celebrate communion every third Sunday. It's a time to remember Jesus' death on the cross, to come before him afresh, to worship him specifically for his blood being shed for us. And at number six, this is like really, really a big one here, because this is so lacking today, and I just so long for it, and it's so important. They're a Christ-centered, loving community. Look at Romans 12.5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now that word members there is like the word parts. What Paul is saying here is that we're parts of each other. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you're baptized, you're baptized into the body, and you, you now are part of other people, and those other people are part of you. Okay, so, so you're part of me. I am part of you. Which means that my spiritual well-being is a boon to you. Your spiritual well-being helps me. My spiritual weakness or lethargy hurts you. Your spiritual weakness or lethargy hurts me. So I was thinking about this last night with the Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, I am a rock, I am an island. Any of you others who are in my age, just a few of you are in my age group. Okay, good. Because it really happened in song back then, all right. But anyway, the, the, the point is it's wrong, okay. And so if you understand, I mean, look at the people around you sitting next to you. They are part of you. You are part of them. When they're doing well in the Lord, you are built up and strengthened. When they're not, you're not. When you're doing well, they're built up and strengthened. When you're not, they're not. We are interconnected. And we've missed that so tragically with our lack of community so that in so many, it's just so easy to think that going to church means I go and I attend a service and then I leave. I go and then I leave. I go and then I leave. That is not at all what the New Testament describes as church. Church is a community of people where Bill and Jane and Sally and John and Penelope and Pete, they all know each other. They love each other. They're part of each other. And look at this next verse to see what that means. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and 26, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Are you part of a group of people where if one of them suffers, you all learn about it, and you all suffer with that person? If you're not part of a group of people that's that close, then you're not experiencing church life the way the New Testament lays it out to be. Are you part of a group of people where if one member is rejoicing in some ways, that you all can rejoice with him or her? If you are, that's the kind of closeness that Paul envisions church being. You know each other. You love each other. You care about each other. You're able to share the things that go well. You're able to share the things that don't go so well. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. So Friday night, we were at the Garcia's house, Friday night home group, and somebody there just shared a real grievous, sad burden that she was anticipating coming up this next week. And I think God gave us grace to weep with her, to understand, to pray. And I think if you asked her, she would say that she, she was supported, she was helped. But see, her grief over that is our grief, if we're a body. Do you feel that? Her grief is our grief. It's just like if you stub your toe, unless there's something terribly wrong, the rest of your body will know. That's how it works. Unless there's something wrong. Nerves have been severed somehow. And tragically, lots of nerves seem like they've been severed in churches today. But we've got to be a church where if you are hurting, others around you know it and feel it and weep with you and come alongside you and pray with you and care for you and help you. So church is to be community. We're so schedule-oriented, especially in this culture. We think, well, church is Sunday mornings from 10 to 12. Or maybe it's Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. That's not what church is. Church is a group of people who love each other in Christ, who are part of each other. They show up here Sunday mornings. They show up Wednesday nights for home group. But that's just part of what they do because on Mondays, they still are a body. Does your body stop functioning as a body on Mondays? 
you're glad it's together Sundays from 10 to noon, but then when you go back home, all of a sudden, it's like, well, there goes the toe, and there goes the ear, and it's kind of sad until Wednesday night, you know? Then I'm back together again. That's not how the body works. You hope your body will stay together at 1 o'clock today and at 5 o'clock tonight. And that's how it should work in the body of Christ. There's a community. It's not something in your schedule. It's something in your heart for these people. You love these people. If they're in need, you feel it. When they're rejoicing, you feel it. They're in your heart Tuesdays. They're in your heart Thursdays. They're in your heart Fridays. You love them. You care for them. It's mostly a matter of the heart, not mostly a matter of the schedule. Are you feeling that? Do you get that? This is, this is a radical calling. This is costly in terms of time. Very hard to pull off here in Silicon Valley. We don't have any alternative but to pursue that, as costly as it might be, because that's how Jesus wants his bride to be. Do you realize that the relationships and the connections that you have now with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ will be part of the splendor of the bride of Christ at the final day? That the phone calls you made this last week to encourage someone, somehow that will be eternally significant in, in, in being part of the splendor of the bride at the second coming. The relationships, the weeping, the love, the prayer, the time, the energy, it's all forming the bride of Christ, which he's making to present to himself. And there will be your little phone call right there, part of the bride displaying the splendor. There will be your rejoicing with that brother, your babysitting for that family. You're providing financially for the person in need. It will all be part of the tapestry. The things you do now are forming the bride, which will give glory to Jesus forever. That's an amazing thing. But it's not just putting some time slots in your schedule. We like to say, church is not a meeting you attend, but a group of people you love. That's mostly what it is. Ephesians 4.1, one other text here. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness. This is how we've got to get along. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility gentleness, patience, love, maintaining unity. What do you do when you disagree with somebody? Okay, we've got to maintain the unity of the body. What do you do if there's somebody here that you disagree with, you've got a concern about? What you don't do is talk to everybody else about it. That rips the body. The person you're telling about George has just been separated from George by what you said. Torn the body. It's not what you do. We've all learned to do that from our before Jesus days. That's what you do. You got a problem with somebody, you go talk to other people. You don't talk to them. You talk to everybody else about it, right? That's what we've all learned to do. Jesus says, no. No. Be eager to maintain the unity. So you pray about it first. Bring it before the Lord. Get it all settled so it's... Okay, you know, you don't have to talk to them to get it off your chest. You, just, you, you get it? The Lord's met you, all right. And then you go to the person, if, if necessary, and you talk to them about it. You get it worked out with them. No disunity, no division, eager to maintain the unity of the body. Okay, rapid fire here, number seven. They have regular gatherings. Build each other up in faith through fellowship, worship, spiritual gifts, Teaching of God's Word. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. This is a great verse to describe church life. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now notice this is something that the whole body does for each other. This is not just what the elders do for the body, although the elders do this. But the whole body is to do this. You are called to take care lest there be in any other brother or sister an evil, unbelieving heart. You might think, well, what, what an offensive thing to think that there could be an evil, unbelieving heart in my brother or sister. Well, there could be, because there could be in you too. We're all still sinners. We've been saved. We have new natures, but indwelling sin isn't gone yet. So we need to lovingly, not judgmentally, not self-righteously, humbly, brokenly, take care. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
leading you to fall away from the living God. So what should we do then? 13. Exhort one another every day. Every day. Every day. Did you see a picture of what the body of Christ was like in the New Testament? Every day they were exhorting each other. Every day they were talking together. Every day they were encouraging each other. How much does that happen here? Some, I know, I hear reports, makes me really just full of joy, but not enough. I'm, I would guess many of you go day after day after day without giving any encouragement to another brother or sister outside of your family, which is a really important thing to do, but not anything outside your family, and not receiving any encouragement or exhortation from anybody outside your family. But we're called to exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today. Why every day? Well, it's because I'm, you know, I've got new sin today. I've got new unbelief today. I need new encouragement today from you. The goal is that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we've come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think a good way to summarize the Bible is that The Bible teaches eternal security. Once God saves someone, he will keep you persevering in faith all the way to the end. And the Bible also teaches that eternal security is a community project. And it's true, I don't know how to put this all together, that your brother's eternity depends in some way on your regular encouragement of them. That's what this verse teaches. It's just right there, plain as day. Do you feel that? A few of you do. I want to feel it more. Ephesians 5.19. So this first one is just fellowship. Ephesians 5.19 is worship. We address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's part of what this entity of the church does when they come together, like we've done this morning. 1 Corinthians 14.12. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Like we've, we've heard some spiritual gifts this morning. And then teaching. 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Number eight. They practice biblical church discipline. This is one way that Jesus cleanses his bride. See, the, the church is to be... A counter-cultural community in the world. That our love for each other would be so remarkable that people would notice. And that our holiness and our truth-telling and our sexual purity and our patience and our honesty and our faithfulness, these traits would be exemplary in in the world. That people would... Say, wow, these people really live differently. Not in a self-righteous, haughty, we're better than you way, but in a humble, depending on Jesus, I'm a saved sinner way. And so church discipline is a vital part of that. Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. Not everybody else. Tell him. You and him alone. Alone, Jesus emphasizes. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He listens, he he agrees, he repents of his sin, he's restored. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And here's a specific instance in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul talks about. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man is sleeping with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. The church at Corinth was arrogant about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So let me give you an example. If if you get into having an affair and you're being unfaithful to your wife, here's how we'll operate here at Mercy Hill Church, just so you know. And it's important that you know this 
Because if you're going to become a member of the church and you need to be saying, yes, this is biblical, and yes, I understand that this is what I will receive, this is what I, Steve Fuller, will receive, this is what, what you'll be a part of, this is how we're going to operate, this is how Jesus tells us to operate. I want to make sure you're really clear on this. But if you are unfaithful to your wife and are having an affair, whichever brother finds out about it will not talk to anybody else about it, but will go right to you privately and appeal to you to repent. And as God gives you grace, you will. You'll repent. And your eyes will be opened. What am I doing? I'm sorry, Jesus, forgive me. And you'll be restored, and that'll be done. It'll be over. Nothing more will be said about it. If you don't repent, then that brother will bring two or three other brothers, one or two other brothers. And they will lovingly, not self-righteously, appeal to you to repent. And the reason we do this is because we love you. If you're having an affair, your eternity is at stake. You understand that? It's Galatians 5, last two verses of the chapter. Very clear. Saved people don't do that. Okay? So if you're doing that, you've got to wake up. So the brother's intention is to have your eyes be opened. And so we trust God will give you grace to repent. And you'll repent and it'll be over. It'll be done with. Uh, Nothing further. If you don't, then it'll be told to the church. And the reason it'll be told to the church is so that the church's demeanor towards you will change. It's vital that we not come across to you like everything's fine. Because everything's not fine. We won't cut off communication. You can come here, but our, our response to you will be love and weeping. And please, repent. Please, you need to change. Does that sound strong? It's very strong because it's very serious. It's because we love you. and We want to see you restored. So that's how it works. That's how church discipline works biblically. This is one of the ways that Jesus cleanses, purifies his bride. It's wrong for a church to allow an affair to continue on in its midst and do nothing. It dishonors Christ. It sullies the bride. We can't do that. He doesn't give us the option of doing that. It's all got to be humble. It's all got to be out of love. It's got to be with fear and trembling and with tears. But it's got to be. And it will be. Number nine. They show and share the good news of Jesus in their neighborhood, cities, and world. I'm going to talk about this next week, but look at that picture. I love this picture. This is my screensaver for about two years. There's Bill Clark. He's in Kazakhstan having a gathering of Uyghur men, and he's telling them about how his dad, Bill's dad, met the Lord. And uh, they're all, I just love the faces of these guys listening. Anyway, so we'll talk about this more next week. Okay, top of the next page. So how are we going to pursue this here at Mercy Hill Church? Let's kick that picture up, Tom, if we could. Here's a picture. Every picture lacks some things, but this does hit some of the main things. How are we going to pursue this? First of all, this is like an organizational chart, if you will. A lot of smiling faces in the middle of it. I like organizational charts with smiles. Number one, Jesus and his word is our authority. We're going to follow the book. We're going to believe the doctrines that are taught in the book. We're going to relate to each other. We're going to pursue community. But Jesus and his word is our authority. Culture isn't our authority. It's like, well, what's happening out there? What's, what's working? Not necessarily. Spirit is not our authority. I don't know if you read the, uh, the letter to the editor this week. I think it was in response to Dick Bernal's ad about the gay marriage thing. And two pastors who live, whose church is about a mile from my house said that the spirit today, this isn't an exact quote, but it was the gist of it, is saying something different than he was saying in the New Testament times about gay marriage. So that's, that's, that's a different approach. There it would be spirit on the far left side, um, which is very subjective and kind of hit or miss. The problem with that is that they've divorced the spirit from the spirit-inspired book. The Holy Spirit wrote this book. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's told us about how we are called to love people that are gay and respect people that are gay. And because we love them, we appeal to them that pursuing that lifestyle will keep them from Jesus Christ and salvation. And we should say that with tears and with humility and with brokenness. But it's not loving to tell them that the Spirit says anything different. It's not loving. It's not loving. It's not loving. And I I pray for those pastors, and we should all pray for pastors who don't tell people the truth about what Jesus has said, because a hundred years from now, their blood will be on their heads if they don't tell them the truth. So we've got to follow the scriptures. 
Jesus and his word. So that's number one. Jesus and his word is our authority. Number two, the elders seek to submit to Jesus and his word and lead the church according to Jesus and his word. Pray for Tom Hatcher, Jerry Ship, and me. We are currently the elders here. And we seek to submit to Jesus and his word. We are sinners, saved sinners, but we are sinners. And so we need your, need your prayers. And you know, you may, just throw this in, you may see us doing something wrong that the Lord may not show us we're doing something wrong. That's how it works in the body of Christ, right? I've got blind spots that Jesus won't let me see all by myself. He will only let me see them because you tell me about them. And he loves to do that because it humbles me, right? And it knits our hearts together. And so if you see something in the leadership of the church that you think might be amiss, talk to the leadership of the church. Because we may not be seeing it. Maybe totally like oblivious to something. All right? And if, if we pray and you're right, we'll change. And if we pray and we don't think you're right, then we hope we can all be friends anyway. All right? And agree to disagree. I put in parenthesis, everyone studies the word on their own. The one problem with this picture is you could think it's just the elders that follow the word and we all just like follow the elders. No, 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 no. Have a big Bible as a big foundation for the whole thing underneath, okay? Uh, okay, so Jesus and his word is our authority. The elders submit to Jesus and his word, seek to lead the church according to Jesus and his word. The number three, we think that the most wise way to build the church is as small, Christ-centered, missional communities. Okay, and that's these little guys right here. Okay, right there, right there, right there, right there. And those are called home groups here. A, a group of people small enough so they can rejoice when one rejoices and weep when one weeps. A group of 8 to 15 people who know each other, love each other, pray for each other, spend time together. That's a home group. And so we think it's wisest to build the church on these home groups. Now, notice there's people who aren't home groups that are still smiling there, okay, which is a good thing because um, if, you, if for whatever reason, schedule, time, whatever, you're not able to be part of a home group, I would encourage you to get connections with other people that are in home groups or that are not, but find this kind of close connectedness in other ways. But the, the main way we as elders are trying to structure the church to give all of you or as many as possible this experience of the body of Christ is to focus on the home groups to be structured in that way. Number four, the home groups gather weekly on their own. Let me explain it like this. The main thing a home group does is they love each other. There's a group of 8 to 15 people. They know each other. They love each other. They're in each other's hearts. They're part of each other. Okay? And then they meet together, uh, maybe Wednesday night, Tuesday night, whatever night, just as a group to pray for each other, study the scriptures together. They worship together. They plan how they're going to advance the mission together, build each other up in the faith. So they meet once a week together, and then they show up here Sunday mornings together to have worship with other home groups and to receive the teaching and then they go back into their group during the week and wrestle with what they've heard in the teaching how do we live this out how do we apply this how's this going to work in our lives so that's number four right there and the number five the home groups share jesus with their neighbors their neighborhoods webs of relationship friendships they have through work or family or whatever city san jose unreached people groups the home group does this with some planned things together, and a lot of stuff they do individually, praying for each other and supporting each other. So this is how we're seeking to structure, how we're seeking to pursue those nine points that make up the church that I described earlier. And so what I would encourage you to do is, if you're not in a home group, do all you can do to be in a home group. Okay? If there's a problem with babysitting, if there's a problem with schedule, let the elders know. We'll, we'll pray and see if we can't meet. We'll do almost anything. We'll do anything we can to help you get this home group involvement. So if you're not in a home group, do all you can to be in one. If you can't be in one, then pursue this kind of relationship with people that, aren't in, you know, people that are in home groups or aren't in home groups, but, but have it anyway. Get it. This is body of Christ. This is what it's supposed to be like. And then if you are in a home group, I just want to encourage you. It's really easy just to let it become something in your schedule. But don't let it just become something in your schedule. Love the people in your group. Care for the people in your group. Be patient with the people in your group. 
Listen to the people in your group. Pray for the people in your group. Call up, email, text the people in your group. Love them. Love them. You're part of them. They're part of you. Let the Lord knit your hearts together in love, which is that close church community, body of Christ thing that Jesus is forming. He's building his church. That's the kind of church Jesus is building. That is church. People who love each other in that way, in those ways. So do that. That's the main thing I want to call you to this morning. I mean, to understand what, where we're going as a church, but in terms of a, a take-home point, love the people in your home group. Serve them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Receive encouragement and prayer from them too. And here's four reasons why this is so important, and I'll wrap up with this. Number one, your love for brothers and sisters shows your salvation. This is an amazing passage, 1 John 3. I'd encourage you all to memorize this. We know that we've passed out of death into life. That's conversion, salvation. How do we know? Because we love the brothers. Loving the brothers doesn't earn your salvation. Loving the brothers shows your salvation. When God saves you, he brings about a heart change in you that you will love other followers of Jesus Christ in costly ways. That's what happens when you're saved. If that's not happening, you probably haven't been saved. That's what this verse says. See it here. Don't just take my word for it. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, again, it's not like, okay, I guess I need to be saved. I've got to start loving the brothers to earn getting saved. That's not what the passage says. You start with getting saved. You trust Jesus. You bring nothing to the table but your sin and trusting Jesus to save you. And he'll save you. He'll change you. He'll put his love into your heart. You'll start loving the brothers. What is love? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, literally, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, figuratively. Do you have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people for whom you lay down your life? Figuratively. Maybe literally. In this culture, we're spared from that for the time being, which we can be grateful for. But do you have people for whom you're laying down your life. That's what love means. And then here's the specific example to drive the point home. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It doesn't. So it gets real tangible. Financial help, emotional support, sharing scripture, babysitting, making meals, time spent. Your love for your brothers and sisters shows your salvation. Number two. So do you feel the importance of that? This is really, really big. It's not optional. Your brothers and sisters need your encouragement if they're to avoid deception and if they are to continue in faith to the end. I already read Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. I'll read the middle verse. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. We are presumptuous if I think I can let today go and not encourage my brother because they're doing fine. That's foolish. That's foolishness. That's very Pollyanna-ish. Satan is prowling like a roaring lion seeking to devour everyone in your home group every day. And God has ordained... That your love and words and phone calls and care would be the means by which he's going to keep your brother persevering in faith to the end. It's wrong to say, they don't need my call today. They don't need my encouragement today. The Bible never talks that way. You're being very naive if you think that. Satan's not naive. He loves you thinking that. Call them. Love them. Care for them. Eternity is at stake. And that call and that love will be part of the splendor of the bride of Christ that Jesus will present to himself on that final day. And you will have so much joy if you've laid your life down for your brothers and sisters. Do you feel that? Number three, if you love Jesus, you'll build what Jesus is building. He says, I will build my church. So that's clear there. 
the relationships you build now, the encouragement that you give to each other now will count and be evident in some way for eternity. And then finally, if you love Jesus, you'll love his bride. I'm just thinking, if, like if I was over in Morocco on a missions trip and, and Jan ended up somehow not having food to eat, my bride, Jan, my bride, if you love me, you're going you're to help Jan, right? You will. If you don't help her, you don't love me. If you love Jesus, you're going to love his bride. If you're not loving his bride, how can you say you love Jesus? Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. When you serve the saints, you show love for his name. For Jesus' sake, remember? Paul's on the road to Damascus. Jesus confronts him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Yes, he was persecuting Jesus. And then look at Hebrews 10.34. Here's how they served each other. Costly ways. You had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Some in their church had been arrested for being Christians. They had compassion on those in prison. In those days, if prisoners ate whatever people brought to them from the outside. So if you took food to feed the Christians that were in prison, that would mark you off as a Christian. If they were in prison for being a Christian, and you as a Christian take food to feed them as a Christian, that's going to mark you off as a Christian. What's going to happen to you? Well, in this case, they had their property plundered. Houses burned down, possessions taken away, and they accepted that joyfully because they had a better possession. I've got Jesus, and they have an abiding one, eternity with him. Like Martin Luther's old song, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Forever. Nothing about my real possession has been shaken here by having my property plundered. But see the love here, the way that they showed love for His name in serving the saints. I want to call you to love Jesus and to love His bride. Build His bride Love his bride. Encourage his bride. Lay your life down for his bride. Weep with his bride. Rejoice with his bride. Babysit for his bride. Provide financially for his bride. Love and serve his bride. And finally, he's going to present the bride to himself. And your efforts will be seen as part of the splendor of the bride on that final day. Let's stand together. And let me pray for us. I pray for your power to come right now upon us, Jesus. This might sound really different to some people here. And I just pray you'd give them grace to study the scriptures and that you would teach them from your word yourself. Teach them so that they can see what you call them to be and do as part of the church. And I pray that we here at Mercy Hill Church would have your grace poured out upon us so we could love each other. We could love and encourage and serve and lay our lives down for each other in costly ways because we have a better possession and an abiding one. And because we love you, Jesus, and we want to love your bride and build up your bride. Forgive us, Lord, for how we have been naive, for how we have been preoccupied, self-focused, selfish with our time and our energy for how we've slandered or gossiped or let divisions come or have withheld love from people. Jesus, let today be a a day of turning over a new leaf by your grace, working in our hearts, giving us your love. So as Dave leads us now, just be before the Lord and, and ask him to give you, maybe he's already given you, but what's What's he calling you to do? 
What is Jesus calling you to do for his bride? Jesus, come and make make your will clear to us now. And we want to say yes to you. We want to say yes to you, Lord.